Thanks, Bob. Good morning, church family. And as mentioned, the Bible reading is from John chapter 7, and we're looking at verse 1 to 36. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision... Though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, 
but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going back to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Scott, there we go, I'm on. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Scott's my name, um, I'm really glad to be with you this morning. I want to start with an apology, if you're a note taker, I've done it again, uh, I've changed the outline, there's the new outline, it's kind of the same but in a couple of minutes you can take that down. Appearances can be very deceptive which is why I love this video. Take a look at this and see how, how judging based on appearances is never a good idea. Hi, what's your name, darling? My name is Susan Boyle. Okay, uh, Susan, uh, where are you from? I am from Blackburn near Bathgate, West Lothian. It's a big town. It's a sort of collection of... It's a collection of... Uh, Villages. I to think there. And how old are you, Susan? I am 47. <laughs> and that's just one side of me. <laughs> okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but he's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay. Big song. <laughs> yeah? Yes. Nobody expected her to succeed, not a single person. Even before she starts singing, the expectation is that this person is going to fail. You see it in the looks that the judges give to her, the, the way some of the audience members roll their eyes, and then she just belts out this amazing voice, and nobody expected it. 
because they'd all made their judgments based on her appearances. Today, that's what we're talking about, judgments. How do we make judgments? It might sound a little bit jarring for us because we live in a world that doesn't like to judge. But the truth is we all make judgments all the time. We do it every day. We have to. We make judgments based on our preferences, based on people's performance, based on uh, our personality. We make all sorts of judgments based on all sorts of criteria, and we do this all the time. But what about when it comes to judging religion or, or, or religious figures? That's something that, in general, our society doesn't like to do. Uh, we... We, actually, we do do it. It's just that we do it privately, not, not openly. Uh, we make judgments about our, our religious judgments in private, but we've just read a part of the Bible where there's a whole bunch of questions about religion, and particularly about one religious figure, Jesus. And people are making all sorts of judgments, quite openly too, to one another. But Jesus says that these people in the, in the passage we read They've got the same problem as the people in that video. They're judging by appearances. So look at what Jesus said. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So today, as we look at this part of Jesus' life, we're asking, how do we do that? How do we judge correctly? How do we judge Jesus correctly we need to pray at this point and ask for god to help us because this is a big thing let's pray together our father in heaven we give you thanks that we can hear these words of jesus this morning and yet we recognize father that we need your help to understand them so please god clear our minds from distractions Uh, Clear our hearts from worries and and help us to heed your word now. And pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be not really what I think, but what you think. That's what we pray now. And ask that you'd help us all as we apply it to our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're reading uh, and thinking about John chapter 7. And the whole mood in John chapter 7 is one of volatility. Uh, in chapter 5, Jesus was down in Jerusalem. But things did not go so well for him down there. In fact, at the end of chapter 5, the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. So in chapter 6, we see he's gone up north to Galilee. And that's where he spends the whole of chapter 6. And at the start of chapter 7, Jesus is still up there in Galilee. In fact, look at the way that chapter 7 verse 1 summarizes it. After all this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. That's the backdrop into which chapter 7 takes place. And as I said, chapter 7 is full of people making judgments about Jesus. And that's the first point today. The story of chapter, of chapter 7 is that everyone judges Jesus. But each time, their judgments come up short. Let me take you, take you through the passage now. We'll see some highlights along the way. The first people to judge Jesus here are his brothers. 
Uh, they reckon that Jesus is all about public attention. So there's this big festival that's about to happen down in Jerusalem. And it's the kind of thing that, that every Jewish male will leave his hometown and they'll go down to Jerusalem for the festival. It's a big event. And so Jesus' brothers tell him, the people are there, Jesus, why don't you get there too? Have a look at verse 3. They said to Jesus, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. They're treating Jesus like he's a, like a C-grade celebrity, craving attention, just wanting publicity, so going where the, the, the people are. But really, we get the heart of the problem in verse 5. Verse 5 tells us that even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' brothers misjudged Jesus, and so do the crowds at the festival. See, eventually Jesus does leave Galilee, and he goes down to Jerusalem, but he goes in secret. He's not the attention seeker that his brothers think he is. And when Jesus gets there, we begin to see what the crowds are saying about him. So in verse 12, some say, he's a good man. Others reply, no, he deceives people. Popular opinion is spread. The crowds can't make up their mind. And then halfway through the festival, Jesus begins to teach. And this provokes even more of a response from the crowd. In fact, Jesus confronts the crowd there with the plot to kill him. And the crowd turns on Jesus. They say to him, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And things don't get any clearer by the end of the chapter either. Uh, in verse 40, we read this. On hearing his words, that is Jesus' words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others ask, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. So they can't come to a conclusion here, can they? Because the crowds have the same problem as the brothers. They keep misjudging Jesus. But perhaps the strongest reaction of all comes from the religious leaders. See, they'd been waiting for Jesus to come to the festival waiting for their moment to strike. And once they find out that Jesus is, has arrived, well, they don't waste any time. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about Jesus. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So for the rest of the festival, there's this tension, this suspense hanging in the air. Will Jesus get arrested by the temple guards? What's going to happen? And on the last day, Jesus gets up to teach at the festival. And these guards are right there in front of him thinking, maybe this is it. But no, in fact, the guards don't arrest Jesus. They, they go back to the religious leaders and they're empty-handed. And these religious leaders, they explode. Verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. 
you get the sense that the Pharisees, the religious leaders here, they're, they're, they're incensed. They've got all the theological training, and yet nobody seems to be listening to them. And then, in fact, one of their own uh, speaks up. We met Nicodemus back in chapter 3, and, and here he is again. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what, has, what he's been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. The religious leaders are just too worked up, aren't they? they they've made their judgment on Jesus, and how dare anyone disagree with them, but like the brothers and like the crowds, the religious leaders as well have misjudged Jesus. They've got him wrong. As you read chapter 7, that's the story of the chapter. Constantly, people are making their judgments about Jesus, throwing their ideas into the mix. But it's a mess of confusion. And into that mess, these words of Jesus ring loudly. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Which leads us to the next point. The question, how? How do we judge correctly? How do you go about making a right judgment on Jesus? We actually touched on this question a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was talking about all the witnesses that line up behind him, that speak to him being true. And Jesus said, the greatest of these witnesses is actually God, the Father. And Jesus told us when we read the Bible, we hear God's voice to us, God's testimony about Jesus. So if we want to find out the truth about Jesus, we read the Bible. Today, Jesus says something different. Not, not contradictory, but something that actually goes hand in hand with that. And the first thing that Jesus does is that he identifies a problem. We'll go right back to the start of the chapter Jesus is talking with his brothers. And Jesus says there's a problem. That is a problem with his brothers, the same problem that we have. Jesus tells his brothers there's something fundamentally different between himself and them. And that's why they misjudge him. Look at verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. It's pretty confronting what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He's, he's saying that the brothers have an allegiance to the world, to, to the way the world works, to the things that the world believes and the world values. And Jesus says, I'm different. I don't belong to the world. In fact, I'm in opposition to it. I call out the world on its evil. Because his allegiance is not to the world. So, do you want to make a right judgment about Jesus? The first thing to ask is, where's your allegiance at? Is it with this world? It's not that Jesus is saying you need to escape and live on some other planet, but, but the norms and the accepted truths of society 
you need to be ready to challenge them, to, to stand out from them. Are you? Because that's the heart of the problem. The world will never get Jesus because Jesus and the world are opposed to each other. But then later on, Jesus actually shows us where our allegiance needs to be. It's halfway through the festival and he gets up and he starts teaching. And the crowds are actually really wowed by Jesus. He he must have been a great teacher. And, And so the crowds ask, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? It's, it's a question about where the teaching comes from. It's actually our question too. They're asking, where does this teaching come from? How do, how do we know if it's true? How do we judge it rightly? And look at Jesus' answer. Jesus says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. See, here again, it's, it's about changing your allegiance. Jesus says, put your allegiance with God. Do his will. It's about where our commitment lies. Is it with the world or is it with God? Because the kind of commitment God wants is not one where we sit as judges over him, deciding what we like and leaving behind what we don't like. Have a look at how one writer puts it. This means that the truth is self-authenticating. In the sense that finite and fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside of the truth and thus gain the vantage point from which they may assess it. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to figure out if Jesus is telling the truth? Give your allegiance to God first. In the narrative, in in the story, in in what happens in chapter 7, you can see that this is actually a problem for the crowd. At one point for the crowd, it seems like the penny has dropped for them like they're on the brink. They're about to realize that Jesus is the Messiah and then, well, it all falls apart from them. Have a look at verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? They seem so close, don't they? Like they're just about to get it. And then... Well, they find a reason to say no. Next verse. But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. It seems like no matter what evidence they have, and they have a lot of evidence, right? These are the people that have seen Jesus face to face. These are the people that have seen Jesus' miracles live and in the flesh right in front of them. And they still find a reason to say no to him. I once met a guy, quite a smart guy, um, who was, he was seemingly interested about Jesus. 
he had lots of questions and he was happy to sit down and discuss them. Um, he'd even come along to church and, and kind of listen to what the Bible said. And at times it just felt like he was so close. Like any day he'd, he'd kind of step over the line and decide, actually, I'm going to live for Jesus now. But it never happened. Because in the end, his questions were not the real issue. His questions were, were more like a front. He wasn't really looking for answers. He was actually just looking for a reason not to believe. Friends, beware of that kind of question. Jesus is saying here that we have a problem of allegiance. And if we want to know the truth, we actually need to change our allegiance to God. So how does that happen? Jesus promises divine intervention. The kind of divine intervention that that can actually dramatically change the fundamental commitments of your life. Jesus says he can give the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus refers to the Spirit in terms of water, of of living water, which is like saying running water. The opposite, the dead water is that kind of stagnant water that just stays there and gets yucky and mucky. And, but living water is the running water. The spirit is linked with water because water is linked with life. And the spirit brings life. The spirit brings a new life before God, a new start before God. Because if we're honest, I think, I think we all know that none of us actually live up to God's standards. If God is our judge, and he is, we've actually got a problem. But Jesus says, I can give the Spirit, and the Spirit gives you new life, a new fresh start with God again. But not only that, the Spirit, he also gives us a new life that's actually based on truth, based on the truth that Jesus brings. So much so that that later in John, actually the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth because he helps us live a life, the new life, based in this truth. Jesus is saying to us here, we need to change our allegiance from the world to God. It's a, very, it's, it's a spiritual activity, a spiritual problem that needs a spiritual change. And so Jesus says, I can give you the Spirit who'll do that for you, who'll do that with you, who'll do that in you. So, what do we do with this then? We're at our last point today, the implications What do we do? I'll say two things. The first is, is I want to pose a question for you. On what basis are you making your judgment about Jesus? Whatever you've decided about Jesus, what's your decision based on? If you're here today and you're not really sure what you think about Jesus, you're not really sure what to make of him, This really is a live question for you, isn't it? 
on what basis will you make your decision about Jesus? Now, I've already spoken a bit about this, so I'm not going to go over the same things again, but I just wanted to, to extend an invitation today. Would you like to sit with someone through this? To talk about your thoughts and ask what's next and get some input every now and again? If you do, we'd love to help. We'd love to help you find someone at church here that could sit with you and, and do that with you. I realise this could be a bit strange because, I mean, you'd be talking about some stuff that's pretty personal, stuff that's life-changing. Um, and I, I don't want to be pushy about this, but we want to let you know the invitation is there. If you'd like to sit with someone as you think these things through, let us know. Just let us know by writing something on your, your comment card. Uh, your name and number or email, and and just say something like, "I'd like to talk with someone about Jesus." Something like that. Pop it in the ba- in, in the in the bags as they come around later. We want to extend the invitation to you. We'd love to sit with you as you think those things through. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Uh, today I've been talking a lot about how we make decisions and judgments about Jesus. I've been talking a lot about how we do that personally, how we personally might make a decision. But I want to pose a slightly different question now. That is, how do we help others make that decision? How do we help others make a good decision about Jesus? I really am talking now to you if if you have decided to believe in Jesus already. Uh, If you decided to believe in Jesus, my guess is you think that's the right decision about Jesus. Uh, So... My question now is, how do we help our friends make that same call too? What we've seen in the passage is that this is actually a very spiritual activity. It's about changing allegiance from the world to God, from the norms and patterns of the world to the norms and patterns of God. It's something that the Holy Spirit does in us. So, so how do we help others make that decision? Well, I want to say firstly, this doesn't happen just because we've got all the answers. For most of us, we have uh, friends and we, we talk about Jesus and our friends have generally stacks of questions and it can feel like sometimes we haven't got a clue about how to answer them and, and sometimes and that can mean that I don't want to keep that conversation going. It sometimes might even mean that I don't ever start the conversation in the first place because I know my limitations and I know that I can't possibly answer all these questions that my friends have. But the good news is I don't need to have all the answers. I mean, sure, if my friends ask a question, I might need to do a little bit of research and think about how I'll help them and answer the question. But, But having great answers doesn't change a spiritual reality. There was a time when I thought I did have all the answers. I was uh, 19 or 20, so you can put it down to the ignorance of youth, but uh, I thought I had all the answers. And, and surely if I had all the answers, then I just needed to line up my friends, line up conversations with them, and then one by one, they'd become Christians too, right? They'd decide to follow Jesus like I had. And I remember sitting down with one friend in particular. His name was Sam. I can vividly remember the coffee shop we sat in, I can remember the place where we sat. I can even remember the, 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 the looks we were getting from the people who were sitting just a little bit over from us. Uh, they must have thought our conversation was a bit weird. 
But it, it went something like this. My friend Sam would uh, throw a question my way, and I'd, bam, whack it for six. Or at least I thought I did anyway. So. But that was the conversation. Bam, a question, and bam, question, bam. And uh, finally we got to the end, and uh, we're at a point where I said to him, so, Sam, what do you think? Do you think it's true? And he said, yeah, I do. I think it's true. But I'm not going to do it. I didn't know what to say. I thought I'd had all of the answers. But that didn't help. That didn't change. Having the answers didn't change a spiritual reality. So what do we do? What do we do then, friends? We pray, don't we? We pray to God. And we ask God to send his spirit. Because the spirit brings new life, not my answers. It's the spirit that changes people's spiritual situation and spiritual problem, not my answers. I'm sure along the way, we'll answer questions and we'll wrestle with big ideas. But the real issue is about a spiritual allegiance here. So we need to pray We pray and ask God to give his spirit. In fact, that's the first thing that mission is always on about. Whenever we do something for mission, our first step must always be prayer. And in fact, whenever we do mission, the constant hum, the constant background noise always has to be prayer. Because what we're aiming for is a spiritual change and that doesn't come about through me. And you know what? You are doing that. You are praying. I'm really excited to be able to tell you this, actually. I know that you're praying because we've recently done a, a survey, a survey about mission, how, how you're going about uh, talking with your friends about Jesus. And in the survey, there was a question I asked, uh, do you pray for your friends and family who don't currently follow Jesus? Without exception, everybody who did the survey said, yes, 100%. Here I am posing the question. The question is, how do we help others make a good decision about Jesus? But that statistic tells me, you actually already know the answer. The answer is we pray. Because we're involved in a spiritual activity uh, and that spiritual battle can only be won by God. So we pray. Friends, we pray. We do. We must. You know, we look out for the opportunities that God gives us. We take them where we can. But the constant thing we do is pray. So I just want to encourage you, friends. You're doing this. Keep doing it all the more. If we want people to make right judgments about Jesus, to make good decisions about him, well, we don't have the power to change a spiritual problem. But we know the one who does. So we pray to God who can give the Spirit. In fact, why don't we do that now? Let's pray to our God now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you gave us Jesus. But not only Jesus, you gave us your Spirit too. We thank you that he 
dwells with us, that he gives us new life, that he gives us uh, a new start, a fresh start with you and helps us live life in the truth now. God, we recognize that this doesn't come about by anything we've done, but by your intervention in our lives. Thank you, Father. And so we pray. As we go out, and as we try and chat with people about Jesus and help others make good decisions, please be with us, God. Please help us to have answers where we need to, but please, God, would you be sending your Spirit to bring new life into people, to bring new life and a certain hope in the truth that comes through Jesus Christ. We trust in you for this, Father. Amen.